Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast, where we explore the adventures, perspectives, and philosophies of world travelers. I am your host, Lee Thornquist, and thank you for listening. Real quick, before I introduce today's guest, if you've listened to past episodes or if you enjoy this one, please write a review on Apple Podcasts, either through the app or iTunes on your computer. I enjoy reading your feedback, and it also helps new people discover these conversations. If you need a step-by-step guide on how to write a review, go to edgeofcomfort.com forward slash podcast dash review. For many recent university graduates, the self and external pressure to immediately go into the workforce and begin climbing the ladder of corporate America is very high. To be fair, this is most the reason why people do go to college. You know, they want to get a good job and they want to set themselves up for a comfortable life. In other countries after graduation, people are encouraged to delay this entrance into the workforce and go see the world for an extended period of time, which is often referred to as a gap year. People take these periods of exploration to experience more of the world, to break from the bubble of their life and their culture, to expose themselves to new ideas and possibilities, and hopefully catalyze some change and growth within themselves. Now, this does not always happen, and even if it does, it happens in various degrees to each individual, but most people do feel some sort of change, growth, or self-confidence from a trip like this. My guest today Aaron O'Neill decided to adopt a variation of the gap year mentality when she moved to China right after graduation for what was supposed to be a six-month work experience in Shanghai. Now, I say supposed to be because things did not go quite as planned. Aaron O'Neill is an enthusiastic digital storyteller and conversationalist with a serious case of wanderlust. By the time she turned 23, She had visited 22 countries on four different continents, but perhaps the most life-changing adventure was living alone in China for six months. Despite the culture shock, severe language barrier, and struggle to figure out how chopsticks works, Asia taught her how to trust herself and create a world in which authenticity, mindfulness, and vulnerability were the only survival tools that she needed. Erin has since devoted her time to sharing stories from abroad and life lessons in travel, and is currently finishing writing her first book entitled Gi Ren, which is a written Chinese phrase that encompasses the right people coming into your life with synchronicity to help guide and inspire you. Gi Ren is a narrative devoted to illustrating moments of phenomenal connection and celebrating the lessons learned throughout travel. It's an immersion into the comedic reality of navigating a world without verbal communication, finding stability and routine in an unfamiliar world, and abandoning comfort zones to catalyze personal growth and adventure. Aaron writes about many of these adventures and lessons of Giren, including topics like trust, vulnerability, friendship, and connection, all on her blog, Out Collecting Stamps. Erin also speaks about her experiences at local libraries near Columbus, Ohio, 
and gives helpful tips for traveling and navigating life abroad. And she also posts these videos and these speeches up on her website, onmylist.org. Erin's story is one that resonates deeply with me just because I found some similarities in what she discovered in her experiences abroad, um, and I think it will with many of you as well, even if you haven't done some hardcore international traveling. And I don't want to spoil any more of Erin's roller coaster of a story and the incredible lessons she learned along the way, so let's just get right into it today. You can find full show notes and links to the things we reference at edgeofcomfort.com forward slash EOCP27. And you can also watch our conversation in the video on the blog post or on the Edge of Comfort YouTube page. Make sure to stick around at the end for the question of the episode. And thank you so much to Erin for sharing her story with us. Thank you for listening. And let's go. Good morning. What's all the commotion? Wow. Are banana fish big? Same, same, but different. If I can't scuba, then what's this all been about? Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast with your host, Lee Thornquist. All right, Aaron, great to have you on. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad that Rick was able to uh, put us in touch and he, he's all a good connector with people. So I did you guys, are you from the same town or how do you guys know each other? Yeah, we went to the same high school. Uh, well, middle school and high school. So we knew each other through there. I think it was two years before me. Um, and our school was quite small, so it was easy to know who was there. <laughs> <laughs> did he uh, Did he ask for advice when he was going to Asia uh, like a year or two ago? No, actually, we just recently reconnected. He had uh, coffee with one of my good friends, and she was telling him about the work that I've been doing, and he realized how much we had in common, so we kind of reconnected after then. So it was a it was a post-trip reconnection, if you will. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, yeah I'm, uh, I'm really excited to talk with you today and kind of learn more about your story, um, just from our kind of initial pre-conversation and some of the things that... Uh, been able to find through your videos and blog posts sounds like a pretty uh, wild story and kind of turn of events that you've had in your life. So um, I guess, well, first off, I want to hear about this plane story because I heard you reference it <laughs> in uh, in one of your talks that you were doing at a library and you said, okay, you know, this is the story you asked me about later. So I guess people who are listening on might be a little confused, but you're on your way to China, to Shanghai. And so what happened on the ride over there? Yes. So I was in the process of flying from Toronto to Shanghai, where I was relocating for six months. So I was in the mentality of moving to this new country. And I'm a plane junkie. I actually love planes. I love plane food, which is really gross. <laughs> But it's because I'm eating it while being transported around the world. And so plain food to me kind of brings a sort of odd nostalgia. Um, and so I was sitting there. I think I was watching a documentary about Warren Buffett. And I had I was in the aisle seat. 
And next to me was a young Chinese mother and her about six or seven year old son. And so we're just kind of getting into the flight. It's an hour and a half, maybe an hour in, and I'm sitting there eating and she starts she starts laughing really loudly at whatever cartoon she's watching. And it was a little too loud for normal social behavior for adults. (laughs) But I was like, hey, I'm not here to judge. It's fine. And so I just kind of minded my own business. And then all of a sudden, I feel this cold set of eyes looking at me. And I kind of glance over and she's just looking at me like staring at me as though she's trying to intimidate me, get into my soul. I'm not really sure. (laughs) And so I do one of those awkward waves and kind of a hello smile but not super friendly I don't want to have a conversation you know those odd ones that you can tell people are staring at you so you just kind of want to acknowledge it and move on with your life and so I turned to her and kind of gave her a little wave and then she just kept staring at me and mind you when we were ordering our dinner she couldn't even she didn't know enough English to even say orange juice or rice or chicken But all of a sudden, I hear over my headphones, she's talking to her son in English, talking about how I'm dangerous, I'm going to kill her, I'm going to kill everyone on board. And so her son is looking traumatized. And I take off my earphones and I start looking around the cabin and everyone is kind of looking at me deer in headlights. And I'm surrounded by native Chinese speakers, so I can't ask anyone what's going on. Or if I could, she would know because apparently she can speak English. And so she points at me and she turns her head and she looks at me straight in the eyes and she says, you're going to kill us. You have to die now. And I panicked because in all of my international travel experience, I have yet to come into a situation like that. So I get up and I tell the flight attendant that I, I don't think my seatmate is very stable at the moment. And he walks over, asks her what's going on. She starts throwing food all over the place, telling everyone that I have a giant knife in my bag, that I'm going to kill everyone. And so, of course, all of the flight attendants are like, where are we? What what land are we over? Do we need to emergency land? They get out passenger restraints. I'm escorted out of the cabin. They search my bag. I mean, it was this unbelievable film-like experience and I'm sitting here crying because I'm moving to this foreign country for six months and this is my first experience. So it was definitely a unique trip. Um, I got upgraded to first class, which was wonderful, (laughs) but it was certainly not the first experience that I wanted going into a six-month-long solo endeavor of moving to China by myself. Um, So So definitely a memorable journey. What happened to the lady and like after they searched your bag, what did they take her somewhere else or did she calm down? Did you ever figure out what the hell was going on? I guess it took them four hours to subdue her. Um, and I wasn't allowed back in the cabin, but they told me that they were finally able to subdue her. She was escorted off the plane as soon as we landed. Um, I heard murmurs that she's not flying air Canada ever again. Um, but I mean, I, I just sat there in shock for the rest of the flight. Uh, when they searched my bag, obviously they didn't find anything because let's be real. If I could get a giant knife in through security in my backpack, it would be more of a, of an achievement than anything. I mean, that would have been really hard to hide. Um, and so they actually ended up pulling out of my backpack, a giant Build-A-Bear bunny that I had stuffed in my backpack because my friends sent it with me when I moved. And so they handed this giant stuffed bunny to me and they were like, where are your parents? And of course I don't look very old, but I also don't look young. And 
and you're doing what for sixes? You're moving by yourself? Are you sure? Because I was just so distraught. Um, so obviously they didn't find anything. She was escorted off, but it was a very, very memorable first trip. Wow, that is an, an intense welcome into your new home. <laughs> not before you yeah. even land, too, like in the air, not even there yet, and that happens. Yeah, yeah. So was it like? So I guess let's take a step back and let, help the listeners kind of understand why you're on your way to China, anyways. So um, can you kind of walk me through again, like? Okay, so I know you first went to China for an internship between uh, years of school, and then decided to move there after. So I guess could we get some more background information on why you were even heading to China for six months in the first place? Yeah, so I had just graduated college, um, and I had interned with someone in Shanghai the summer of my junior year of college. So it was a six-week program. Um, but I continued to work for him throughout the school year and continued to edit videos remotely as I finished up my degree, um, because my degree is in digital media production. And so a lot of the work that I did for him was photo, video, um, vlog style work. And so I was able to do that remotely as I finished up my degree. And then in February of the year that I graduated, he invited me to come back for a three to six month term project to continue the work that we had been doing. And so, you know, a lot of questions came into my mind of whether I should stray from that usual path of finding a secure job, starting to climb the, the ladder, you know, that we all climb and, um, or do I set that aside and take a short term project and have to do it all over again in December when I got back? I said China, because that's just the kind of adventure that I was looking for and the kind of opportunity that I wanted. And it was a dream job, to be honest, right out of college. And so that's, I was moving to Asia to start that project with him um, in June of 2017 is when that whole flight debacle happened. <laughs> <laughs> so what was going through like your mind when you were looking at this decision? I mean, that's a really big decision. You know, you've gone to school the past three and a half, four years to probably kind of get a job and kind of start on that path. So what was your mindset when you were like, I'm going to stray away from that and try something different? I've always been kind of an off the beaten path person when it comes to not wanting to stick to the status quo. Um, I think I fall in to that path in a lot of my life. So, I mean, I did graduate from high school and I went right to college. I didn't take a gap year. Um, I've, I've followed the pattern up until this point. And so to think about straying from that, regardless of how much I knew that this was going to enrich my life, it was hard because all of my friends and family were really excited for this trip. But it also meant that I was going to be a 12, 13 hour time difference. I mean, even talking to my friends and family back home was going to be hard. Um, I had actually just started a brand new relationship. So I left the country two months after we started dating, um, which is a whole other story in, a, in of itself. Um, but my, my primary concern was how far is this going to set me back in the real world, if you will, of when I return, people aren't going to be looking for someone who hasn't had any real job experience right out of college. They might look at that and go, oh, she was just kind of messing around and not doing anything meaningful or anything that was going to help build the skill sets that the rest of the world is looking for. And I kind of just had to set that aside and go, what my 
what my priorities were at that point in time outweighed any worry about my future. We spend so much time thinking what if and and planning so far in advance that we don't think about what's right in front of us. And so I think embracing that opportunity to really put myself out there and try something different and follow my passion of travel and human connection and storytelling while getting paid to do it was, I mean, I couldn't think of any reason to say no. Um, when something is right in front of you like that, you take it, you leap. So you do take that leap and you head to China. So initially you knew that it was going to be for a six month period. And mm. so you like, what were your expectations going into this? You, you'd had the internship, you kind of were familiar with a little bit of China and its culture and um, personally, I think it's one of the most opposite places from the U.S. in terms of like yep. cultural norms. So you got a little bit of a taste of that. And so now you're going back for six months. Like what, what are your expectations, I guess, for this, for this period? Yeah. So the job offer included, um, working equipment. So everything that I needed to do the work was going to be provided for me. Like what, um, what equipment? So computer, video cameras, um, DSLR cameras for photo shoots, mics, all of the necessary equipment that I would need to produce videos and photo content would be there for me um, and to edit all of the, the content. Um, so all of the content, all of the equipment was going to be provided. Um, and then in that six month period, we were going to travel to up to five different countries. Um, so Singapore, Taiwan, Thailand, Hong Kong, and Indonesia was on the list in the proposal of places that I was going to get to go with him. Um, and so I was only going to make $7 an hour, but all of my travel and accommodations on the road was going to be paid for. So I kind of had to balance that financial aspect of it was that, yes, I'm making below minimum wage compared to what the States is, but Asia is a lot cheaper of a place to live and travel and all of my accommodations and flights would be paid for. So, um, so I knew that we were going to, we were going to travel a lot. Um, and I knew that I was going to be able to network with leaders from all over the world in a variety of different industries that specialize or have performed very well in corporate responsibility, social responsibility and leadership. Um, and so, you know, that previous summer I had met a lot of phenomenal people and not only gained insight into how they run their business, but also how they live their lives with joy. Um, and so I was really looking forward to getting back to that and networking with people who could change my life. So why, like, that all sounds very professional and, like, you'd learn a lot of good skills from it. Like, now, I guess now in hindsight, when you can look back at it, I guess, you know, why were you worried that, like, this would kind of set you back from the normal path in the U.S.? I think a lot of people look at a gap year as a bad thing. And I think we should probably stray from that opinion um, because it wasn't going to be it was more of a contracting job than it was an official employment. And so for me, yes, it would still go on my resume, but it would appear as a blip in my career. Um, and so I was nervous to have that blip. As prestigious as that may be, I was nervous to have that on my resume. However, as I was over there and I was talking to people about this experience, I realized that it doesn't matter what you're doing over there or what the title is, the fact that you put yourself out there like that and take a leap and make something of it is far more important to employers or at least should be to your employer 
than most people realize. So you can take a gap year. You can explore the world. If you can talk about it in the right way when you come back, then you don't have to worry about it. It's really the people who sit down in front of an employer and go, oh, I didn't really learn anything. I don't know what it was for. Those are the people that should be worried. But if you can sit in front of an employer and say, this is the skill set that I built while I did this, that adds more value to it. That's really good advice. Yeah, you don't want to sit there and say, oh, I just traveled and partied for six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you land in China. You don't have a knife with you. You survived the plane ride. <laughs> so, like, what were your first few days or your week like? And, you know, you're moving to this country. You don't know the language. Everything is very different from what you're used to. So kind of can you walk me through these first few weeks and your work and what was going on? Yeah, so I actually I got um, I got into Shanghai a little bit earlier than I started work just to kind of try to get adapted to everything, get into my apartment, get settled a little bit. Um, it was a battle to kind of get myself established because the first time I went was with a school group, right? So all of the the um, check-ins with local police, the cell phone data, all of that was provided for us and we didn't have to try very hard to use it. So um, the apartments that we stayed in registered us with the police. Our school provided SIM cards for a certain amount of data. We didn't have to worry about paying for anything because unless it was a little bit of spending money here and there for food, they took care of all of the transportation, everything. I was kind of just like a following duckling in a way. Um, but this time I had to do all of that on my own. So I had to figure out how to register with the police. I had to figure out how to get a SIM card. Um, I had to get a bank account because of the app that I wanted to use called WeChat, which is like Instagram, Venmo, Facebook, text messaging, Uber, Uber Eats, all added into one. <laughs> I mean, you can donate money to charity on this thing, buy movie tickets. It's it's China's go-to app. And you can't survive as a local in China without it. And so in order to do that, I had to have a bank account. And there's a very interesting blog post that I do uh, kind of go through the process of getting that bank account and having to use Google Translate and the apostrophe in my name made it a whole headache that it didn't have to be. Um, so I had to learn patience very quickly. I had to learn resourcefulness because I had to figure out how to communicate things that in English would have been very simple. Um, I almost stole copies from a local shop because she made the copies for me. I took them. I thought that she said to Kwai. Kwai is the um, slang term for Chinese yuan, um, which is their currency. And so she, I thought that she said two. She said seven. So I was trying to steal five Kwai of her livelihood. And so, but in that moment, she understood that it was a translation error. And she then spent the next 10 minutes teaching me how to count to 10 in Mandarin. And so I had a lot of those kind of small moments of here, I realize that you don't understand how to speak the language. So let me help you along. Um, so I was very fortunate in finding people who were fairly open to helping me um, kind of figure it all out. So what was like, what really surprised you the most this second time coming back? In terms of getting situated or about the country in general? 
Um, kind of the country in general, and okay. like not from being like knowing that you were gonna have a longer amount of time there, and like more of a, a an expat, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I blended in more, which sounds weird because <laughs> I'm a blonde in China. Um, but Shanghai is a very international city. There are a lot of expats living there. Um, and so the Shanghai locals have kind of gotten used to expats being around and navigating their world. I mean, a lot of the restaurants you go into, they have English on the menus, which is unlike most Chinese cities that are not larger international cities. And so I think what was most alarming is my ability to just blend in if I acted confident and like I knew what I was doing. So the only time I didn't blend in is if I looked clueless. So I learned to adapt to that expectation. And no matter how afraid or timid I was to try something or navigate somewhere, I looked totally confident. It was like I had been living there for years because people would leave you alone if you did that. Um, you know, you hear about all of these tourist scams and it's kind of a protection method to help not put yourself at risk because the more lost you look, the more likely you are to be taken advantage of. And that's just the reality in most countries around the world. Um, so I think not being surrounded by a whole other group of foreigners kind of let me just slip into the crowd and, and disappear in a lot of ways. So I think that was the most surprising. Did you have any friends or other people that something like that happened to? Or they like were kind of lost or like got taken advantage of in a way? I think a lot of the people I befriended over there were pretty similarly um, developed, I guess. So a lot of the people that I met were also expats who had been living, if not in Shanghai, at least in Asia for at least six to six months to a year. So I feel like there's a shell that you develop very quickly. And I, I think all of my friends that I had there had developed that shell already. Um, I heard stories of other expats running into issues. So my coworker was telling me one about, um, a very popular scam, which is that a local might pull up next to you on their scooter and fall over, even though you didn't touch them and then make claims to the police that you pushed them or that you hit them. And then of course the police would blame the foreigner most of times and so you might find yourself in a very difficult situation where you're owing them a lot of money just because they don't believe that it wasn't your fault so things like that but I mean that can really happen to anyone it's just the wrong place the wrong time um, unfortunately wow yeah that would be you'd be screwed I feel like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah especially if you have zero understanding of the language yes so when did you, so I guess, did you finish the six months there? And like, what, what ended up happening? You know, it sounded like you did a trip after. And so what, what worked out with your work? And where did things maybe go a little bit wrong? Yeah, so like I said, it's it was my dream job, this position. Um, I mean, I was ready to travel and meet business leaders from all over the world and tell their stories. And Within the first two weeks, I realized that the person I had worked for the previous summer was no longer the person that I knew. 
um, a lot of things, and I'm not sure why, changed in his characteristics, his motivation, his his ability to follow through on promises. So I didn't have, I had the basic equipment that I needed, but I had to use my own laptop, which is very old and difficult to uh, handle the workload, I guess. Um, so I didn't have all of the equipment that I was promised. I arrived to find that none of the trips he had told me that were actually booked were even planned, let alone purchased. Um, and I frequently found myself in sticky situations as I was the butt of most of his jokes as he, you know, cause I would go to these presentations and film, um, film him presenting, film the other panelists. And it was too frequent of an event where I was the butt of his joke, or he would call me a stupid millennial in front of the rest of the room and criticize my life choices, even though there was no grounds for that kind of commentary. Um, I was, I was told during this position that I could easily be replaced by not just one, but two Chinese workers for the same price of $7 an hour. So do the math, three fifty dollars an hour is nothing. Um, but I was frequently told that I could be replaced. The work wasn't fulfilling. I wasn't having the conversations that I thought I would. And like I said, none of the travel was planned. I had to beg to leave the country just so that my visa could be reset. Um, my paychecks were often late and missing money. Um, and it was just a very negative work environment. It was extremely heartbreaking and frustrating and emotional because I was so excited to produce amazing work for someone who I could no longer trust. And so I kept fighting through it and I tried to, to become a little bit more level-headed. I tried to strategize my mindset and think, you know, okay, maybe I'm just looking at this wrong. But everyone in that office told me he couldn't be trusted. Everyone told me that I needed to be careful. I mean, these are his own employees saying things to make me believe that I had made the wrong choice. Um, and so it came to the point where I had to decide whether or not I was going to continue because ultimately I was waking up in a foreign country full of opportunity, depressed and angry every single day. And that just wasn't who I was and that wasn't what I wanted out of the experience. So unfortunately, it did not work out. Um, about two and a half, three months into the position, I quit. Well, I didn't really quit because I was just kind of shunned out of the position. So I didn't even really have the opportunity to put in a resignation because he just stopped answering my messages. Um, and I decided to start traveling. So I said, you know, this I had $3,000 in my bank account. I was going to save that for when I returned to help pay my student loans. But I started traveling instead because I was not about to waste the last three months of being in Asia because someone ruined it for me. Um, so that's the, the shorter version, I guess. <laughs> Did, were there like any warning signs that you can think of, like that you maybe overlooked when you were in your internship or like in the first week or so that like, that seems pretty crazy that this guy just did a complete 180 and you have a good relationship with him. And then suddenly it's just totally different. Sorry, totally different. I should have been more nervous when less than a month before I was supposed to leave the country, my plane ticket hadn't even been bought yet. Um, I had to keep pestering him to actually book the flight to China, which meant that I couldn't file for a visa 
because in order to apply for a visa, you have to have housing, you have to have a plane ticket. And so I couldn't do any of that without the ticket that he hadn't purchased and that I had to keep asking about. So that really should have been my first, my first warning. Um, and then I consider my second warning to be the lady on the plane. It was like the universe's <laughs> way of telling me you need to turn around and go home. Um, but I'm so glad that I didn't. Why is that? Because that experience, while it was one of the worst experiences of my life, because it challenged me emotionally, it challenged me um, to overcome not only a workplace issue, but also a foreign country issue. I mean, I was alone in China, and suddenly I was facing the reality that if I left my job, I would be completely alone. And so, but what happened after was this phenomenal journey of self-discovery, of reassurance that I can still make something out of nothing, that I can take that $3,000 and have an experience of a lifetime that would not only connect me to the rest of the world, but to myself. Um, so I decided to start traveling with, with the funds that I wanted to save for student loans. And ultimately, it brought about connections and lessons in my life that I otherwise would not have had. So I want to get into some of those lessons here shortly, but real quick before we do, like, what were, you know, what were you saying to your family or your friends back home, you know, three months prior, they're like, Oh my gosh, Aaron's going to China. She's going to do this awesome job. Like, she's like the one person who's doing this crazy thing of our friends. And, you know, you have such not maybe high expectations, but just yeah, high expectations and like a positive idea around this and to have that totally be flipped on your head and then like having to admit that not only to yourself but to other people. Like what, how did you go about kind of navigating that? Were you just, yeah, I'm in a shitty situation or like what was going through your mind? I cried a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent probably two days in bed trying to figure it all out, trying to figure out um, I mean, my, my parents were aware of what was going on. My, my boyfriend was aware of what was going on. And some of my friends back home had through the grapevine word of, Hey, her job isn't going well. Um, but I, I had started a blog and I had quite a following on Facebook, at least, you know, my 200 followers were very near and dear to my heart. <laughs> um, and so I knew that eventually it was going to come through that I had failed and that was what kept ringing through my mind is I failed. And my roommate at the time, her name was Jenny. She's a wonderful person. Um, she sat down with me and she said, I want you to think about three things. I want you to think about number one, is it benefiting you financially? And obviously my answer to that was no. <laughs> I'm making $7 an hour, but the rest of my paycheck was supposed to come from travel that's just not happening. So she said, okay, is it helping your career? And I said, not really, because none of the that I'm doing, anything that I can put in a demo reel or even talk to with an, talk about with an employer. So it's not really helping me grow my career or my skill sets either. And then she said, okay, three, do you feel good about what you're doing with your life? And I was like, I feel like crap. So no, I don't. I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like I'm learning. This isn't helping me at all. 
And so she's like, why are you still there? You have a choice. Everything in life is a choice. And so I realized in that moment that what I was going through could help other people, that my experience and my negative environment could be turned around very quickly with an attitude. And so I switched that attitude and I went, that didn't work out. Everything happens for a reason. Let's make the most of it. And so I started traveling. And when I came through in that in that light and that attitude, people took to it very well because they thought, wow, she's she's not giving up. She's not coming home, which was an option I had considered. But it would have cost me more to fly home early than it would have to just stay in Shanghai. <laughs> and I think we all have these moments where we find ourselves in a situation where we feel trapped and heartbroken but to turn that around makes you a bigger person. It makes you stronger and it teaches you about yourself. And I think that once I phrased it that way, it resonated with a lot of people. So what are some ways that you can kind of turn that around either like in your mind and make that mindset shift of, you know, I have this option or the actual situation itself, especially when it may not be as so, um, I don't want to say like black and white, but you know, you were, you were expected to do this and suddenly that was not even really an option, at least for you anymore. So yeah. What are some ways that you can kind of make that shift and kind of take the trajectory of your life in a different place? Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing that I really noticed that helped was just getting myself out of that negative environment. Um, and you know, I know it might be hard if there's someone who's been at a job for a long time and is trying to make a career change, but still has to go into the office every day. Whereas I simply started working from home in the last you know week or two before I decided to quit, um, to just get that negative energy out of my space. I think that was a huge part of it and to move myself elsewhere. But then, you know, underneath it all, we have to remember that, Life is yin and yang. It is darkness. It is lightness. Without the pain, we can't know joy. And that's just a truth that everyone has to face in their life, that the pain, the frustration, the anger that you feel is for a purpose. And when you find the joy, the light, the silver lining in that pain, you become a better person. Um, and so it's, it's hard sometimes to find that light when things are just so dark, but it's that light that keeps us going. There's a reason that people fight through the hard times and it's because they know, even if it doesn't feel like it, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that light at the end of the tunnel for me was traveling and getting out there and meeting people who would change my life. I just didn't know it yet. And I just had to trust that that's what would happen. So was this trip like all glamour and glory then, you know, it sounds like very, uh, you did this trip and nothing was bad again. Like, <laughs> so what, mm -hmm. uh, walking through some of this trip and some of the places you went and, uh, some of the lessons you learned along the way. Yeah. So I, I did, um, I did three separate trips. I did Western China first. So I took a train from Shanghai to Xi'an saw the terracotta warriors. It was amazing. Um, I went to, I took a train out to, um, Lanzhou and then wandered throughout the city for the day to catch an overnight train to Dunhuang. So I had never ridden a train overnight before. Didn't know what to expect. 
Um, but it was quite an experience just kind of going in blindsided, not quite sure what I was even supposed to take with me. Um, so I took a, a night train to Dunhuang and then flew from Dunhuang, which is in the Gobi Desert, to Chengdu, the place with all the giant pandas, <laughs> and then flew from Chengdu back to Shanghai. So I kind of did a loop, if you will, through Western China. And then after that trip, I repacked, did some laundry, and then left for Malaysia. I went to Penang, Malaysia for a while and then took a train um, down the coast of Malaysia to Kuala Lumpur and then from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore, another overnight train, but without sleeper beds. Oh, gosh. Quite a few bugs. So what happened on that one was my ticket said first class or um, it said something other than first. It was like high class or something. And so (laughs) I thought, oh, comfortable seats, pillows, blankets. Uh, It was the sketchiest train I have ever been on. There were bugs and roaches and flies just everywhere. Um, Don't even get me started on the bathroom. And I was on this thing at from like one o'clock to five o'clock in the morning. And I just, I couldn't sleep. I mean, there were creepy crawlies everywhere. It was, it was something out of a movie. uh, Truly. It was like that horrible lighting, you know, it's just like swinging. It it was something from a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I imagine it, at least in my memory, remembering that. Um, And so I took the train to Singapore and then I flew from there to Indonesia and Taiwan before heading back to Shanghai. And then the very last trip, I went to Laos, Cambodia, and uh, Vietnam. So I kind of split up the trips, both out of necessity because I didn't really, I wasn't prepared for backpacking. So I wasn't prepared to just pack everything up and go because I still had an apartment and I didn't have the right clothes for the trip. So I took advantage of laundry. I could, but in all reality, these were two to three week trips maximum. So I was on a very tight time frame, and that's why I kind of structured it the way that I did. Um, But I had some very interesting journeys in terms of the overnight trains. Um, I ended up getting an undiagnosed sinus infection flying from Singapore to Taiwan and or Indonesia to Taiwan, and I had booked myself let's see, three or four different flights because it was cheaper to do that. So I basically flew from Labuan Bajo, which is in Indonesia, to Jakarta, the primary airport. And then I flew from Jakarta to Singapore and then Singapore to Taiwan. So it was an elongated trip, but it was the cheapest way to do it. It meant 32 hours of travel. And so I was fighting an undiagnosed sinus infection, trying to sleep in airports. I literally went into a bathroom and discovered that the doors of the stalls go all the way to the floor. So I went in there, locked it and tried to sleep. I mean, (laughs) I was so sick, but I didn't know what it was. And I was traveling in in an airport, so I couldn't just go see a doctor. Um, So that made for an interesting Taiwan experience because I was still fighting off being sick. But other than that, I mean, most of the experiences that I had kind of came together beautifully. And I really don't know how this trip was meant to be. And I just don't have any other explanation for it. Every single time that I found myself 
stuck, someone swooped in and helped, whether it was a local, a fellow backpacker, um, an expat. I mean, someone came in and helped guide me. And so the overnight train and getting sick on the 32 hours of travel was really all of the, the major moments in my mind that stick out that were, that were tough. So why it's interesting, like you, many people do like some sort of traveling, but why do you think that like the people that you met and the way that they helped you is something that's been so powerful in your life? And, um, we'll kind of get into that area of, and why you've, making a book out of it as well or writing a book but like why why are the people along the way something that has really stood out to you because the connection that I had with the people that I met was not because we were from the same home country or because we spoke the same language or looked the same or worked in the same industry the connection that I had with people was simply because we are human and I realized that through simple gestures. I mean, when I boarded that train from Shanghai to Xi'an, I was sitting next to a middle-aged Chinese woman. And I was getting really bored because it was a seven-hour train ride. And so I looked over at her phone and she was scrolling through her social media. And have you ever seen those pictures of the dad bod fanny packs? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the stomach sticking out from under um, and she was looking at a post about that and I kind of laughed under my breath thinking, Oh my God, that's amazing. I've never seen that. <laughs> and she laughed too, but she sat back in her seat and at that point realized that I had been watching her <laughs> screen peeking. And, and I thought that I was going to get a stern talking to in Mandarin, but she instead turned to me took one look, whipped out her translation app and started messaging me. And so we couldn't really speak English to each other, but for the next five hours, she tried to feed me food. She tried to invite me to stay with her in her house. She told me about her educational experience and how she was going to Xi'an for a history convention. She told me about her son. She showed me videos of her choir concerts. I mean, <laughs> it surprises me still to this day that we couldn't communicate because we learned so much about each other. And before I got off that train, everyone was standing up and they were putting on these heavy coats. And I was like, China's not that cold. What's going on? And she looked very concerned for me. And she kind of brought her neck up to her chin and shivered and looked very, you know, mom-like. Very, <laughs> I'm sure you're okay? Because all I had was a light jacket. Sure enough, we get out onto the platform and it was much, much, much colder than I had expected it would be in China. Oh, gosh. And so she bent over into her suitcase and she pulled out a yellow silk scarf. Um, I'm wearing it right now. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, no way. <laughs> she, she pulled out this yellow silk scarf and wrapped it around my neck before she left. And it was that gesture that that made me realize how easy it is to befriend people and how easy it is to communicate when we set all other thought and prejudice and assumption aside. I mean, we, we get so caught up in our routines that we're not, we're not exposed to these connections because we just don't have our mind open to them. Um, and so the, the, the rest of the connections that I made on this entire journey was a lot like that one on the train. I mean, it was just an instantaneous, human connection. 
So I'm interested, like, why is that something that, how did the language barrier affect that? Do you think that almost helped in a way? And obviously some of the other people you met along the way, you didn't have a language barrier with. So what was the difference with this lady on the train where you couldn't speak, but you could still use the translator and then other people where you could speak? Like, did you find a difference in the way that that connection was made? That's actually a really good question. I don't think I've quite thought about it that in depth. So <laughs> I applaud you. Um, I mean, I think in, to an extent, the language barrier does help because you see how much effort each other is willing to put in to still understanding one another. Because there were plenty of times where I would be in a store, especially in Shanghai, where some of the locals have rightfully so gotten really sick of foreigners in their in their hometown because we do slow things down for them. Um, and China, if you've ever heard of it, it's not a very <laughs> slow country. Um, and so there were there were plenty of times where I would be in stores and I would try to. Um, ask them a question or use my translator and I just got shrugged away, waved away. They didn't want anything to do with me. Or they would tell me that they didn't have a product simply because they didn't feel like taking me to that section. Um, So with language barriers, I think you really recognize quickly who's willing to put in the time and who's not. And with that comes an energy of Do they have my best intentions in mind or is this someone that I need to be cautious with? That piece of it comes from just an intuition. Um, Being able to read people is really helpful in that situation. Um, But the language barrier does certainly open up your eyes and your heart to to that vulnerability and that vulnerability creates that connection. Um, So I think having to ask for help from people I knew I couldn't communicate with made me vulnerable and that vulnerability connected us because that's what humans all have in common. We are all vulnerable in some way. So how do you take that vulnerability and in a foreign land with a bunch of foreign people and I mean, you're the foreign one, but a lot of strangers and you have having to be vulnerable and put your trust in someone and, you know, they're maybe saying, you know, come to my house and I'll give you dinner or whatever. Like, I guess, is it possible to put that intuition into words? Oh, I've been trying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I, I met a man in Malaysia whose name was Zaman and there's a great blog post about him called Gui Ren, which is the title of my book. Um, and in that blog post, I talk about what happened with Zaman and how I really had to overcome both my prejudice and my my hesitant vulnerability. Because after one, you know, I, I decided to go parasailing with him because um, he worked for a water sports company. And so I went parasailing, I kind of met him, but I really didn't know him. He was just the guy helping me get in the air and back down. Um, But he asked me if I wanted to go hike into a jungle with him the next day. And a lot of people would go, you're crazy, don't do that. (laughs) I mean, this is a strange middle-aged man and you're willing to go walk into the jungle with him. But something felt right. And I, I don't know if I can put that into words. And so I went and I got on the back of his motorbike and I rode off into the jungle with him and he took a route that I wasn't expecting. And so I had that momentary 
panic of I've made a mistake. I'm going to disappear and no one's going to find me. But somewhere deep inside, I knew that whatever was happening was for a reason. And I trusted myself more than anything. And I think intuition, the best way I can explain it is a trust of yourself. So trusting someone else is more of a reflection of whether or not you trust yourself to overcome any adversity is the best way that I could put that. So I trusted myself in that moment that if something went wrong, I knew I could handle it. Um, and he was actually the one who gave me the quote that I still to this day gives me goosebumps. He said, to trust everyone risks heartbreak, but to trust no one guarantees loneliness. And that's the best way that I could put it into words. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. He can't even speak fluent English and he, he got that. (laughs) (laughs) So were there any times where that trust failed you or that intuition maybe led you astray? You know, I always feel like there's going to be a moment where my gut was wrong and I, I would have to really sit and think hard to find a moment where that was true. Because even with this job that I took, something didn't feel right. The fact that the flights weren't booked didn't feel right. And so even looking back, taking the job for six months, my gut knew that something was going on. But the other part of me knew that whatever was going to happen had to. So I don't know. It's an interesting question because I think in every other circumstance after I quit in Shanghai, my gut was always right. And I did whatever it told me to. And it got me to where I am today. Um, And I know that sounds so corny, (laughs) but there's just this, there's an intuition, especially that you build when you travel alone. Um, There were a couple people that I met along the way that I went, "Mm, it doesn't feel right. I don't really trust you. And I'm not going to put myself out there as much as I would if I had a better reaction. So there were certainly people that I met that the energy right away, I was like, nope, I, I, I don't want to associate with you. And I was right about them. Um, For example, there was a group in uh, Siem Reap in Cambodia that they invited us all to go out and we were set to do a tour of Angkor Wat the next day. And they asked us if we wanted to book a group tour. And something told me, you know what, I don't think I can rely on them. And if we get stuck with a private tour meant for eight people, that's going to be really expensive for me. And I said, no, thank you. I'm going to book my own tour and I'm going to do it a little bit cheaper. Sure enough, they didn't show up the next day. I mean, they had, they still booked their own tour, but they didn't show up for it. And everyone in the hostel was wondering, where is this group? They had gone out the night before. They went out to party and they didn't show the next morning for the tour. And so I think listening to yourself and trusting yourself is really important, especially when it comes to your safety and your finances. (laughs) I mean, that would have been a huge dent in my finances. Yeah. So that is interesting. I think traveling is a very, very good way to do that. And you put that into words very well. Like that's something I've been trying to explain or think about. So thank you for putting that into very understandable context. But like I guess since returning from traveling, is that something that you've 
because of traveling you've been able to build up or like before traveling did you feel like you had that strong of a sense or connection with yourself like are there other ways to kind of develop that I think it just has to do with reaching outside of your comfort zone and this is part of the reason that I want to write this book and that I want to work with students I'm currently going into um, some of the local schools and trying to run workshops or do presentations about this kind of experience because you don't have to book a plane ticket to learn what I've learned. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that I want people to have from Goy Ren, from my book, is that it's not something you have to travel for. It's just a matter of breaking your daily routine and putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation where you have to be vulnerable, where you have to ask for help. Humans, we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to have to ask for help. But in all reality, that's what makes us stronger. And that's what builds that intuition. Um, So I think vulnerability is that huge piece of it. If we're not vulnerable, we don't connect with people. And we don't learn how to read people. I mean, if you shut yourself down all the time, how would you have that experience and and build that knowledge to do the right thing? Um, I think I I had plenty of of instances where my gut wasn't right growing up. Travel, I think, uh, exaggerated that experience for me, certainly. But I, I definitely had relationships and friendships in the past where I was wrong and I had to learn the hard way. And you know, as much as parents want to protect their kids, your kids are going to have to learn the hard way for that to really come clear and just feel the intuition when something comes up. So what do you do in situations where those are conflicting in a way? Like when you're booking this ticket to China, it's something within you kind of felt like it was wrong, but obviously in another sense, you felt like it was right. I guess, how do you handle some conflicting messages that you or your mind or your body's telling you? I think that's where the trust comes in. So, you know, if I decide to trust you as a person, it's not me giving you my life and saying, if you ruin it, you have to fix it. It's me saying, I give you my life and my trust because I trust myself to handle it if you mess it up. And I think it goes for everything else in our life. I took that risk to fly to, to China and move myself to China, despite it feeling a little bit wrong, because I knew that if something didn't work out, I could figure it out. Same with getting on the back of Zaman's motorbike and riding <laughs> off into the jungle. I felt like I needed to do that for whatever reason. It felt right. But there was also that piece of me that was very wary and on edge especially as a single female traveler, that's very, that that was a very risky step to take. And I wholeheartedly admit that. But I also trusted myself to be able to handle it if anything went wrong. And I think that's the secondary part to that intuition is if it doesn't feel good, can you at least trust yourself to figure it out if that comes true? And if that's the case, then I think you should do it because that's when you learn. What if the answer is no? If the answer is no, and you you so you don't trust the situation, and you don't trust that you could figure it out if it didn't go through, then don't do it. And there are there are baby steps that you can take 
that don't involve getting on the back of a stranger's motorbike. <laughs> I mean, there are moments to learn about this and there are moments not to. And if you don't trust the situation and you don't trust yourself, do something smaller or less <laughs> riskier so that you don't find yourself in trouble. Um, and I think that's, I mean, it really comes down to knowing yourself and the best way to do that is to make yourself uncomfortable, to try things that you're not familiar with, not dangerous things. Don't go skydiving for the first time without help, but do something that's not in your comfort zone so that you can learn how you handle situations like that. So what are some ways that you did that either on your trip or since you've returned home? Um, good question. I'm trying to think of an example of when I got home. That's probably the more difficult one, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it is because we're so built into our routines. I mean, I mean, I think starting to tell this story was a big step for me because I was afraid of the reactions. And I'm not quite sure why, but I was afraid of feeling like a fraud feeling like people were going to take my story and think, oh, she just hated her job or, oh, she was just a whiny millennial because that was kind of wired into my brain before I even returned is that I was just being a nuisance is what I was told repeatedly while I was over there. And so part of me was afraid to tell this story because of the reactions that I might get. But ultimately, I decided to start speaking up because there was so much more that could go right than could go wrong. There was so much more that I could do with it that would be positive and let the haters just fade away. You know, it's <laughs> so I think you weigh pros and cons when you decide whether to put yourself out there. Um, I've always been an actress. I've always been on stage in some way singing, you know, I've been a performer my entire life, dance, you name it. I was probably doing it. And so but to step on stage at the library in Upper Arlington last fall was very uncomfortable for me. And it was because I was always telling someone else's story. I wasn't ever telling my own. I was telling someone else's choreography. I was acting through someone else. I was you know, reciting a poem of someone else's work. But to step on a stage and start to tell my own story made me really uncomfortable. But I learned so much from that and figured out where I thrive and where I struggle. There are places that I've learned to adapt, learned to compensate. Um, and, and that all came from taking that, that step and saying, I feel like I have to do this and I'm not sure why, but let's do it and what's the worst that could happen? I never get invited back, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm interested to hear more about like, even though you're telling your own story, you still felt like you might feel like a fraud. And that's kind of similar to how I felt when I first started my blog and podcast. I was like, why, who am I to do this in a way? Like, why, why would anyone want to listen to me talk about this or these people I'm having on? And that's a very interesting thing, even though it's your story and you've lived it and you've done it. So how, like, I'm just interested to hear more about kind of these feelings that you had and how you pushed through them and went out the other side despite them. Yeah, there's a term for this and I, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, it's a syndrome. It's imposter syndrome. There we go. 
imposter syndrome is kind of this fear of, yeah, who, who am I to tell this story? Why would I think that anyone would listen to it? Um, and I really started to overcome that because I told people in small quantities. So going out to dinner with a friend, I started telling them about it. Um, I wrote about it on my blog and posted it on Facebook. And all of a sudden, the reactions that started to come through, I realized how powerful it was for other people. And for me, it was like, oh, it's just another part of my life. I mean, it was an experience. It was cool. That's awesome. Let's move on and continue the next chapter. But as I talked to people about this and I watched people's reactions in these library meetings and or not really meetings, library presentations, I saw their faces change. And it was like we connected not because of the story that I was telling, but because of the emotion that it evoked. And I started to realize how impactful it was for other people around me. And that's always been my ultimate goal is to make the world a better place, one person, one conversation at a time. And I realized that that was happening. And so as much as I was afraid that people wouldn't take me seriously, the more I kept talking and the more I kept introducing my story, the more I realized that it was working, that people were listening. They wanted more. Um, and that's actually how this book came about. I mean, it started as a joke because I posted a, a blog post on Facebook and by that point, I had started to get a following of people I didn't know, which was a huge ego boost because I <laughs> thought it was just going to be my mom reading my blog post. <laughs> Someone I didn't know commented, if you wrote a book, I would read it. And at first I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> You're just saying that. It's a compliment. Thanks. <laughs> but then more people started responding and I thought, maybe they're right. And it was on that overnight training that I opened my laptop, I started writing, and all of a sudden, Gui Run came to life. And it just flowed out of me. I am terrified of writing a book. I'm terrified of talking about this story because of the way that people might make assumptions. But that fear is what's keeping me going because I want to prove it to everyone that I can do this. And most of all, to prove it to myself that this is a story worth telling because underneath all of the doubt and fear, I know that this is a story worth telling. So you got this idea while you were still kind of in the moment, in the traveling. Mm -hmm. And so where did it go from there? You get this idea on, on the train and um, we should probably explain what Goy Ren means as well. Oh yes, probably. Um, <laughs> but um yeah, I got, let's do that now then because okay, we've mentioned yep, it a few yeah. times. So yeah, what is Goiren? <laughs> and so if anyone's wondering, it's spelled G-U-I space R-E-N, at least the English spelling. So yeah, can you, what is the Goiren? So I was in Singapore um, and I was talking to a friend and I was telling her about how all of these people had come into my life randomly to help guide me. And how incredible it was that despite language barriers and cultural differences, and despite me looking like a straight up tourist, <laughs> they wanted they wanted to bring me into their life and wanted to talk to me. And I was asking her if she'd ever experienced that or if this was completely unique to what I was doing. And she taught me the phrase Gui Ren. She said, this is... This is what you're experiencing. So it's a written Chinese phrase 
that essentially means the right people coming into your life with synchronicity to help guide and inspire you. So the example that she gave me was, you know, if a friend was battling with an illness for a really long time and all the doctors, all the tests, nothing worked. And then all of a sudden this random woman from work gives you a connection to someone who cures you. She was your goyren. She was your, your savior, if you will, or your helping spirit, um, whatever your religion or spiritual belief might be. She was that they are that guiding principle in your life. Um, and so all of the people that I met really identified in that way. And so that's why I decided to use that as the title because that is there is no other summary of my journey than Gui Ren. It just makes sense. And to anyone who does speak Mandarin, I am not pronouncing it correctly with the tones <laughs> because I do not speak Mandarin. So... <laughs> Um, I, I, I can't grasp the tones quite as much as I would like to. So I've kind of um, Americanized it, if you will. But it's not very frequently a spoken phrase. It's, it's written. Um, and so I'm using the pinyin, the English letters, as the book title. Okay. And the, the subtext to that is extraordinary stories of ordinary people. Um, because I believe that that's, you know, focusing on the stories of all of these ordinary people who just wanted to help me out along the way um, was truly extraordinary. So yeah, how is the book set up, I guess? Is each is it by chapter and each chapter is a different person? Like if you've, I don't know at what stage of the of the writing you are in it, but like how, I guess, is it structured? Yeah, it's, it's essentially structured by the, the people. So each chapter is a new place, which is a new person. Um, so if there was, I think in Malaysia, there was three, three people. Um, so I did divide those chapters up just because there was so much rich content. Um, but each chapter is essentially a new person um, because it's about the people. Did you have to get any like approval from these people to write about them I don't that might be a dumb question since it's just like your experience but I, like did you have to get any approvals or written like things you can talk about I me mean, I don't know if that's a dumb question <laughs> it's not a dumb question it's a very good question because I am sharing other people's stories on their behalf um, and I did quite a bit of research into you know where is that line of can I tell this story? So essentially what I can do, um, there are a couple people simply because of the nature of their work that I would want to run it by them and just make sure that they're okay with this. But if they're not, I change the name and that makes it that makes it acceptable um, because I would not want to uh, damage anyone's reputation by sharing this story. And even the person with whom I was working, I never share his name, I never share the company, uh, because I do believe that while that anger was very real, I'm no longer angry now. And I don't want to create or start a war <laughs> simply because of that fury. And so I think the important thing to know about this book in general is that what the stories that are in it are authentic. They are real, they are factual. Um, it's not a novel where I elaborated and kind of, um, exaggerated to the benefit of the reader. It is, it is all authentic. And in that there are difficult topics. There are difficult moments that were trying for me, 
Um, but in that I, I wouldn't want to make someone else's life miserable simply by sharing my own authentic story, because that's not the purpose of this book. (laughs) The purpose of this book is to teach lessons in decision-making and finding positivity and turning your life around and finding those connections. Um, so if, if I will eventually reach out to the people and say, Hey, just so that you know, I mean, the people who I can reach out to, um, a lot of these, of these individuals, um, I may no longer have contact with. I mean, I can't guarantee that every story in here, I'm going to be able to reach out to them and ask them for permission. Um, so in that case, I may just change a name. Okay. And so back to Gui Ren and like, do you feel like that's something you can influence in a way? Is it just totally out of your control and kind of like a universal workings of yeah, just the workings of the universe that is kind of going to work in your favor? Is that something that you felt like by being this way or doing this, I'm more or more likely to have these? I'm more open to these things happening for me. Vulnerability. That's the only way that you can do it. Um, open-mindedness and vulnerability. That's really the key factor in having these moments simply because you recognize that it's happening. Um, so like I, I said earlier, I mean, we get trapped in our routines. It closes our minds. And so many people think of being open-minded as um, liberal or being open to conversation about hard topics or, um, you know, not being stubborn, but open-mindedness is also practicing visibility and seeing these moments arise in your life and acknowledging that this could be something impactful for you. And a lot of us don't have that because we got so stuck in our routines. And so I think being open-minded and recognizing all of these minor interactions as potential life-changing relationships, but then also making yourself vulnerable in having that conversation and starting that relationship with, with authenticity. Um, I mean, I am currently working at a fitness facility, and even the people that I meet there, some of them have changed my life. Uh, they're my closest friends all because I asked how their experience was going at the club. I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't have had that kind of awareness, though, had it not been for all of the people that I met in Guiren. So how how can the average person maybe listen to this, um, working nine to five, and, you know, during the week, maybe hour commute to and from work, comes back, makes dinner, does a workout, and something else before bed, you know, most people are in this routine of life and working and nothing wrong with that, but that's just kind of the the normal life of society. So how do you not break right. out of that, but like break out of that from in your mind while still living that if that's something you actually want to live? First thing would be to put down the phone. (laughs) Um, We all are in the habits of walking and texting or standing in line for the grocery store and scrolling through Facebook. I mean, people are even on their phones before a movie starts in the theater, uh, on Broadway. I mean, we, we are constantly turning to our phone for interaction with the rest of the world. 
But let me tell you, human connection does not happen through technology. It happens when you put technology down. So the first step, as painful as it may seem at first, is to put away the phone and instead have a conversation with the woman who's checking you out at the grocery store. Uh, I meant like ringing you out, not checking you out, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, have a conversation someone who is bagging your groceries, who is helping you find a movie at the store. I mean, have that conversation and be open to more than just a, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Great. Move on. (laughs) There's so much more of an opportunity for conversation there that we just don't think about because it's not common to strike up a further conversation with someone. So I would say, one, put the phone down and to make time for that conversation to happen. Um, if you see someone in a coffee shop, I mean, we all sit in Starbucks at some point in our life, right? If you see someone working on something or you overhear a conversation that they have with someone else, don't be afraid to approach them and introduce yourself and ask them if you can learn more. That has happened so many times to me sitting in a Starbucks. Um, I have a conversation with one random person and then two more come over and they go, I'm sorry, but I overheard you talking and this sounds really fascinating. (laughs) And I appreciate that because it's not just eavesdropping. It's actually caring. Um, You know, Talk to the person in front of you at Starbucks and and ask them how their day is going and care. I think we, maybe it's just that we get into this routine and we know that we're supposed to care, so we act like we do, but deep down underneath, you don't expect anything from it. Go into each of those conversations expecting something and maybe you'll be surprised what you find. So is that something... So I first off, I definitely agree with the phone thing. Like <laughs> it's it's crazy. This is something I've been trying to be better with as well. Like in just those small moments, just you, like 15 seconds and you look at your phone for no reason. Like you looked at Instagram two minutes ago. Nothing's changed and we are very distracted by it. So how like – at, at a point in history, you know, these didn't exist not that long ago, 20, 20 years ago. We didn't have this yeah. distraction, um, and obviously that's bef- before our time and before we were our age and could think about this stuff. So, like, is that has this always been an issue? Have have phones just accelerated this issue or brought it like much more to our attention? Or is this something that like has kind of been around for a while and it just is always takes a conscious effort? I think it always takes a conscious effort because, I mean, if you think about it, even going back before phones, we always had some kind of distraction. Um, however, we also live in a time and age where we don't go next door and ask if we can borrow a cup of sugar. That's just not the world that we live in anymore. Um we hide behind a screen of some kind to help filter people through our life. Um, And that's kind of one of the things that I'm trying to do and bring into some of the high schools in the area is how to avoid that screen and separate yourself from it and really connect. Um, So I think it's always been a problem and I don't yet know if anyone's found a working solution (laughs) 
Um, this is the kind of thought that keeps me awake at night. But I think making a conscious effort and desiring to have that connection is really the, the underlying cause of what I experienced and what I'm hoping that other people will experience or at least be open to after reading Goy Ren. Um, I guess I would, I would ask listeners to think about a moment when a stranger came into your life and you had a really great interaction or a conversation. Think about how it made you feel. I'm sure it was not a negative feeling. I mean, you leave feeling more confident, more authentic. You leave feeling like you've given a piece of yourself to someone and it it grew into something bigger than yourself. That feeling is why we should do it. And unfortunately, kids growing up with technology right now are not getting that at a very young stage. Um, I, I hate to see when parents go out to dinner and they set their kids up with an iPad. I mean, oh my gosh. it just, it doesn't create the desire for that to happen because the first desire is to check out and we need to check back in. And in order to do that, we have to recognize how it feels to check in because then it becomes addicting and you want to connect with everyone. And that's kind of what I've experienced since coming back is because I'm open to this, because I put my phone down, and granted, I'm still horrible at laying in bed and just scrolling mindlessly through social <laughs> media. I will not pretend that I'm perfect. <laughs> but because I've been more aware and desiring this feeling, I find it far more frequently because now that's what keeps me going. These conversations not only keep me authentic with myself and with the rest of the world. They help me write my book. They help me develop content for the things that I'm passionate about because each conversation I collect and tell a new story. And that's incredible. It's an incredible feeling that we all have access to. We just have to experience it once to know how phenomenal it is. And I do, I do think that that's something that everyone desires. Like, I'm sure you, yeah. most people can relate to like looking at your phone when you don't even really want to be looking at your phone. Like if you are in a line at Starbucks or something and someone behind you like asks you a question and I mean, yes, there are days where you're like, I don't want to talk to anyone, whatever. But on most days, if someone's like, hey, like quick question or whatever, you're going to be receptive to that, especially if they're friendly and you kind of get that good intention or good vibe from them. So right. it's like. Yeah. Or even someone asking you for directions or, I mean, there, there has got to be a point in every single person's life, unless you have never left your house, <laughs> that someone has asked you a question or you have had to ask them a question. So even, you know, earlier today, I was trying to find a building and I pulled up next to a guy who was unloading Coca-Cola for a, a local business and I asked him where the address was and we just kind of had a banter back and forth that it wasn't anything meaningful, but it left us both feeling, at least I can assume, it left us both in a better mood because it was funny, it was comical, it was raw, it was, hey, I, I got to ask you for help, I'm sorry, and he couldn't help me at all. But it was a great interaction because I expected either to get help or to be real with someone. And that's a great feeling when you are completely authentic in what you want, what you need, 
what your story is, the rest follows suit. So what are some good ways that you can get like break out of a rut if you're in one, like you don't feel like you're good at, like is this almost a skill do you feel like, like being that vulnerable? Is that something you can practice and improve upon? And what are some ways that you can, if you feel like that, that just terrifies me. I cannot imagine even just saying hi to someone at Starbucks. Like, you know, they're sitting there, they're on their laptop, but I don't want to annoy them or distract them. Like, I mean, I've felt like that a few times, definitely. So how do you, is that something you can learn and improve on? I think so. Yes. Um, I, I heard a phrase from a friend a while back who I interviewed for a study abroad series. And he said this great comment about, I learned to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I do think that's something that you can train yourself to do, whether that's, you know, facing a fear of applying for a job that you think you're underqualified for, or I'm a terrible artist, but maybe one day I try to draw something. I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be a human interaction. To practice vulnerability, it can be writing a song. It can be doing a dance. It can be signing up for a class. Um, There are tons of community centers. There are tons of public events that you can go to, either with a friend, by yourself. Um, I mean, I started going to these storytelling events that I really didn't know much about. And all of a sudden I have a whole new network of people. I'm the web content manager for their website. I mean, you'll be surprised the things that you do and how it translates into new experiences. Even just going to a local meetup. Um, Couch Surfers is a great website. I used that while I was traveling through Europe on a study abroad program. And I met some awesome people because I found an event that was, hey, pay $10, come over to our house, we'll cook you a a local meal and have a conversation about life. And I was there for five hours (laughs) and I met amazing people. We talked about every topic from religion to humanism to politics to sexuality. I mean, it was incredible simply because I paid $10 to eat food. Um, (laughs) So you can find these opportunities. And my goal is to kind of build a kind of uh, consulting, if you will, to try to help people identify places and things that they can do to practice that vulnerability and being uncomfortable. Um, I mean, it can be as simple as trying a new grocery store. Seriously, that's all it takes. I mean, it, it's just a matter of stepping out of your routine. Go to a different grocery store, order something different at a coffee shop. Try those little things. Make yourself uncomfortable. Take a very small but calculated risk and then start building. And with time, you'll be able to grow trust in yourself and trust in the people around you. And so I, in one of your speaker series, you did, you talked about trust a lot and vulnerability. And there were a few other um, words up on the screen that I forget what all of them were, but like, um, how do these all play in together? And like, what's the importance of building them up? in conjunction with with each other and like what happens if you're not good at one or if one's kind of removed from your life? So I think, and a lot of those were kind of reflecting on the values that I learned as I transitioned through 
moving to Asia. And um, so some of those were even, um, you know, le- learning to give up control, learning that impermanence can be a good thing um, in the fact that just as joy can be ripped away from us, so too can the pain, um, which is something that really resonated with me. And so a lot of the words, I would encourage anyone to go check out um, the the speaker series that I did. And that first video gives you a lot of insight into the personal values that I had to develop and kind of the individual stories behind each of them. Um, because I do think they all play a big part in developing that awareness and that adaptability to make yourself open to those connections. Um, and I, the final word that I share with everyone is open-mindedness. None of those words up on the screen, like control, impermanence, um, vulnerability, trust, none of those work without being open-minded and being willing to learn. Um, And so I think it is possible to be better at some than another. I'm not always good at giving up control. Trust me, ask anyone in my life. I like to be in control. But now I realize that there are some moments where giving up control does me and the world better. So it's not necessarily about being perfect at each of them. It's practicing mindfulness in realizing when is the right time, when are you most strong with it, And where do you need to improve or where might it not be necessary? So, ah, I forgot what my question was. Um, (laughs) ah, I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Um, But so with with that control, I imagine that's something you've had to give up in in this process of not only writing but publishing and and everything with the book and I you are self-publishing it correct correct so um, I decided to go self-publishing primarily because the title is not in English and I don't want a publisher to take any of the authenticity out of it okay so what is like what is the process of self-publishing a book like I mean I don't even know <laughs> where you begin with that and like what the if there's like a certain like okay first you need to do this this and this and then you can be ready to go or you know what's that process look like yeah so I really talked to a lot of my friends um people who had also published books there's this storytelling group that I'm a part of a couple of them have self-published through Amazon I talked to my editor when I met her um who I met through a mutual connection actually And all of them said that self-publishing is the way to go if you want to get it out into the world faster, which is my goal with this book because it's relevant now. And I think it's a story that needs to be told now. And so I don't want to wait for a year, year and a half for a publisher to finally get it out there. Um, And then that way I have a little bit more flexibility with the marketing and publishing eBooks along with it and audio and it can all be in one place. Um, so I decided that I was going to self-publish through Amazon first, and then obviously I needed an editor. And fortunately the, the, um, coordinator for the upper Arlington library series that are on my website, um, she actually got me connected with someone who ended up being my editor. Um, so I got coffee with this woman really not expecting 
to ask her to be my editor. And then all of a sudden we started talking about her experiences and there were these tiny little moments where I realized that she was the aunt of one of my best friends from elementary school. (laughs) And oddly enough, I mean, Google Slides doesn't have that many fonts available for their slide decks, but the font on her business card matched my slide deck font. And it was that tiny little thing that I went, yep, this is right. (laughs) (laughs) And so it sounds totally insane, but I think we discredit those tiny things. And her energy just told me that she knew where this story could go and how impactful it could be. And so she offered to do a free read through. And I said, yes, I mean, free read through, go for it. (laughs) And she came back with exactly what I wanted her to get out of it. Even though it was a rough draft of the very first manuscript, she came back and she she repeated the exact lessons that I wanted any reader to get out of it. Um, she called it the eat, pray, love for millennials. And it just, <laughs> like, I'm on cloud nine and I will be on cloud nine until after it's published. That, she got it. She knew me. She knew the content. And so I said, this is my editor. I didn't interview any other editors. I didn't have them read my stuff. It just felt right. It was that intuition. So I, I'm going to self-publish through Amazon. Um, my goal is by the end of the summer. And in the meantime, I'm just working with her and writing away. So it, it's really not that complicated in all reality, um, depending on how many editing processes you want to go through. So is the bulk of it written and now it's all editing and seeing where you can add or remove stuff? And like, when did you have the overall structure of it? done or the the bulk of the work done I would say I finished a bulk of the work um probably the end of 2018 but then I submitted the first manuscript mid-January I believe um and so by that point I had really figured out the structure for the most part um and kind of the division of chapters and where I wanted to put what kind of information. So it was all written. It just wasn't, it wasn't organized the way that a book should be. My editor said, you have a phenomenal writing style. It's conversational. It's relatable. The lessons that you have to teach others are phenomenal, but you have no freaking idea how to write a book. And I was like, well, (laughs) that's very true. I've never done this before. And so That was a scary moment for me, too, because no one wants to be critiqued. No one wants their work, not belittled, but um, torn apart. (laughs) But I know that she has my best intentions in mind and the book's best intentions in mind. And so I had to kind of do a self-check and step back from my defensive self and instead be open to learning about how this process works. Because I've never written a book before. This is a whole new area for me. And so I have to place my trust in her to know what's right. What, what would a success look like for you with this whole, with the whole book? I mean, people reading it, that would be be fantastic. Um, I mean, I've told everyone since day one, I'm not doing this to become a bestseller. I'm doing this to change lives. I truly believe that the stories and the connections and the lessons in this book can change someone's life, can change someone's life by helping them see something in a new perspective. Um, So, you know, a lot of Brene Brown's work has done that for me. She's kind of one of my inspirations. Um, 
you know, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, was certainly an an encouragement to tell this kind of story because I realized that it could be done and it could be meaningful and impactful. And so I want people to walk away feeling like Gui Ren enlightened something in them or awoke something in their personality that helps them to become a better person and to keep that train rolling. Even if one person reads this book, but they teach the lessons to five, I will be happy with it. That's awesome. I am. Uh, I would really like to read it when it does come out. I'm excited. I mean, just even from like your blog post, I can tell you're a good writer. Like it just, I'm Thank as you. your editor said, like it flows well, and it just, yeah, that's definitely not an easy thing to do. And uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to check it out. Um, and so, one other thing I wanted to to bring up, um, I think it was a quote from one of your blogs. I want to make sure I find it. Um, oh, it was about, um, kind of about fear and this might've been from an Instagram post. Actually, you said the funny thing about fear is that it's more reflective of our insecurities than it is logical reason. And I really like that. And I was hoping you could maybe explain that a little bit more. Yeah. So that was, uh, one of my recent posts. It just kind of hit me one day. I realized that the reason I was afraid of confrontation was because, there was a part of me that doubted my self-worth. And so recognizing your fears as a reflection of your own insecurities can help you overcome those. And so facing that fear of confrontation helped me redefine my self-worth and stand up for what I believed in and ultimately made me stronger because I, I overcame that fear. Right. So, I mean, even like I said, you know, applying to a job for which you're underqualified could, you know, that fear of applying for that job could be a fear of your ability to actually do the job. So it's a confidence issue. Um, And I don't yet have the solution to overcoming, you know, insecurities about your weight, your skill set, your appearance. I mean, those are not things that I'm trained to do. But in my experience, being mindful is the first step. And so being mindful that my fear of confronting a friend or a coworker or a boss is based in my insecurity of my self-worth is an opportunity to turn around and say, okay, how can I change this? What can I tell myself to remind myself that I am worthy to therefore have that conversation? And so I think being mindful of the insecurities that hide behind our fears is a is a learning path. Um, it's an opportunity to to build yourself up and to build courage, really. Do you? How do you recognize these? Does this happen through your writing, or does it happen like do you journal? Do you meditate? Like how do these? How do you become aware of these things? I've tried to meditate maybe four or five times in my life, and it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> my brain does not shut up. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that I recognize these things. I mean, I studied mindfulness for a little bit on my own in college. Um, and one of my favorite takeaways from that reading was, um, you, you shouldn't complain about being stuck in traffic if you can't levitate. And I think that that's just a metaphor for every other adversity that you find in your life. If you can't change it, why worry about it? why get stressed, why get anxious? 
And so I think when it comes to fear and doubt, that is something that I can control. And so I started to just kind of be aware of what I could and could not control in my life and started to check myself when something negative happened or when I found myself becoming upset and asking myself what the real reason was for it. Um, Was the real reason that my best friend broke my vase or was the real reason that that vase was important to me because of the story behind it? Was that then a story that I could write down and journal and therefore have, you know, a peaceful conclusion to it. You know, there's, that was kind of a weird example and I'm really not (laughs) sure where it came from, but there are these moments where there are alternate solutions based on the underlying cause. And I think we, we are blind to those sometimes because we're so focused on the emotion that we feel that we don't look further into why do I feel this emotion and then can I change it into something else? So I think it's just practice and being patient with yourself and knowing that you're allowed to get upset, but you need to know why. Having irrational emotions doesn't help anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Easier said than done sometimes. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I have my bad days. I have my bad moments. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think everyone does. And it's just a matter of... uh trying to make those less frequent if possible. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, um, I think there was one other, um, quote I really wanted to make sure I brought up. Let me make sure I have it right. Um, oh no, we actually already discussed it. My bad. Okay. Well, what <laughs> is, okay. um, I'm curious. So when, when did you get back from the trip exactly? December of 2017. 20, okay, so you've had a... Is it, like, weird writing about all this? Like, even though it was two years ago? Like, does that feel like a long time ago? Or when you're writing about it and kind of thinking through it, does it still seem like it just happened, like, a month ago? It's a little bit of both. When I'm having a rough writing day, it feels like it was five years ago. <laughs> when I'm in the zone and totally connected with it and it's just pouring out of me, I feel like it was yesterday and I feel like I'm still there. Um, something that's helped me a lot is because I was in tune with digital media and using that to my advantage, I do have a lot of content, both photos and videos of my trip. And So going back and watching those videos and hearing the people's voices and seeing the photos of the faces of people that I met kind of helped put me back into that mentality to write. So, you know, even if you're not a digital media pro, which I don't claim to be by any means, if you're planning on writing anything, take the pictures, take the videos, because even if they're crap footage, it will still put you into that place again. It will still transport you back in time to help bring everything else back to the surface. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting how that can be like a entry in itself or like a journal. Like you just see that mm-hmm. and it brings up all the other memories. That's mm-hmm. actually very fascinating. 
Um, and a lot of my, a lot of the content that I have is currently being posted on my Patreon. So I do have a Patreon where people can, I guess, subscribe to the exclusive behind the scenes content, um, while also supporting the book and publication of Goy Ren. So part of the benefit to that is seeing the footage and the photos that the rest of the world may not ever see. Um, I'm not sure. It kind of depends on where everything goes. But for the for the time being, the people who have access to that are all on Patreon. Okay. And wh- where can that be found? Is that like on your website or you just have to search for your mm-hmm. name on Patreon? Or Yes, you can either go to my website, um, onmylist.org, or you can go to Patreon slash Guiren, the G-U-I-R-E-N, and that would be it as well. Um, but most of the events, the photos um, that I have shared, and the link to my blog are all on uh, my website, which is on onmylist.org. Wonderful. And so are you still doing some speaker series? Like, um, I know that's obviously you kind of need to be in uh, Ohio, or you're in Columbus, right? Correct. Yeah, so you kind of need to be in Columbus if you want to see those. But, like, I guess what's on the docket for you between now and the publishing of uh, Guy Run? Um, I've got two series coming up. In, well, not really series, two presentations in May um, at some of the local libraries here. So at the uh, Westerville and the um, – Grandview Library here in Columbus. So those are both listed on my website. And in the in the other t- spare time, um, I am doing a couple presentations for local schools, um, whether that's through an event that they're already hosting or doing something special for me. Um, I'm kind of coordinating those as well. So um, got some exciting stuff coming up in Columbus. My goal <laughs> is to eventually get connected around the country and travel out to places. So if you are listening to this and you are outside of Columbus area and you're interested in doing a workshop or hosting a session about Goy Ren and what it means to me and to the rest of the world, I'm certainly not close-minded to traveling <laughs> throughout <laughs> the country. So definitely open to some plane trips here and there. <laughs> Wonderful. Hopefully you won't get uh, accused of having a knife on board. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely the most interesting flight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hope hopefully that does, ne- does never beat like that. Is. <laughs> yes. I'll I'll let that be the top of the story <laughs> for now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, well, I think that's kind of a good place to wrap up, but is there anything that like we haven't discussed or I didn't ask that you would really like to bring up or make sure people understand before we leave our listeners? I mean, if I could leave anything, it would just be the ability to find the confidence in yourself to tell your story and to listen to others. Um, You know, we all have our social media accounts. We tell our stories the way that we want to there. But to take a moment and really reflect in the authenticity that with which you tell your own story and then allowing other people the space to tell theirs. I think that that alone is a very powerful message and can help you connect with people you otherwise wouldn't have really had a conversation with. So I think I would challenge you to reflect on the authenticity with which you live your life and and share that with someone this week um talk to someone you don't normally talk to make yourself uncomfortable and be okay with it wonderful love it and uh where where are the best places for people to reach out to if they want to say hello or ask a question or 
find out when the uh, when the book comes out? Um, I've got an Instagram account. You can connect with me there. Um, you can also connect with me through my website. Honestly, my website's going to have every link that you might need, but there's also a contact form at the very bottom that will send me an email. So I always joke with people on my Patreon, you can call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Any, <laughs> any kind of method you can get, um, I will respond because as you may be able to tell, I'm a communicator and a talker. So <laughs> I would be more than happy to connect with you and even hear your story. I think that this is an awesome time we live in because everything is so accessible. So um, definitely visit onmylist.org and reach out to me. I'd love to hear from anyone willing to share a story with me. Awesome. One of the many perks of technology, even though there are yes. a few uh, cons as well. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. And I'm really looking forward to reading your book when it comes out and kind of learning more. And uh, I hope the rest of the process goes smoothly and uh, able to get it out when you hope. So yes. really, really <laughs> thank you for talking with all of us and uh, sharing your story. So Appreciate Thank that. you. You've asked you've asked me questions today that no one else has, so I really appreciate that that's as well. That's a win then. That's, that's I awesome. know that's difficult. So <laughs> <laughs> every conversation has a power. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time. Hey everyone. Lee here again real quick with the question of the episode, which is, when have you had your own Goiren moment? In other words, when has someone come into your life at the right time to help guide and inspire you? Head to edgeofcomfort.com forward slash EOCP27, that's the numbers 27, and leave your answer or story in the comment section at the bottom of the post. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to reading your answers. Cheers. Cheers.